Pope John Paul II was widely criticised for his response to the child sex abuse crisis, which you know emerged during his papacy and was, was continual through it. His response was, oh, it's mostly boys who are being abused, it must be homosexuals, we'll stop letting homosexuals become priests, which completely misunderstands the nature of abuse in religious institutions. Hi, I'm Tamsin Peach, and you're listening to The Conversation Podcast. The Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse was established after growing concern that institutions such as the Catholic Church were covering up allegations of child sexual abuse and hindering police investigations. Announced at the end of 2012 and still going today, the Commission's hearings have revealed an alarming level of abuse within institutions and a pattern of inadequate and inappropriate responses by them. Today I'm speaking with Tim Jones, a research fellow at La Trobe University who has worked as a historical consultant to the Royal Commission. We look back at the history of child sexual abuse within Australian religious institutions and see how today's debate has been framed by past events. The Royal Commission is a product of kind of 20 years of simmering, growing interest and concern uh, around the issue of child sexual abuse and particularly child sex abuse in religious institutions. Community concern about child sexual abuse within institutions is not new. It is part of a cycle of interest that has been playing out in Australia for more than a century. A cycle in which peaks of community concern are usually prompted by a single, highly publicised case. However, Tim sees this recent wave of interest and alarm resulting in the establishment of the Royal Commission as something quite different. Unlike sort of earlier waves of concern, the Royal Commission didn't come out of a single incident that was reported, but particularly in terms of abuse in religious institutions, from the early 1990s, there have been regular moments of public concern. A big moment of concern was in 2002 when the former Governor-General, Peter Hollingworth, reacted incredibly poorly uh, in the public media about allegations of abuse against him but also of his handling of known abusers when he was Archbishop of Brisbane. Uh, and since then there have been a wave of international inquiry, so it's not just in Australia. What yeah. happens in Australia is happening in dialogue with these scandals in America, the inquiries in Ireland. Along with growing awareness and concern, there has been a monumental shift in how society understands the perpetrators of abuse and the harms caused to survivors. Once upon a time, abusive clergy were seen as isolated anomalies, with the blame placed squarely on the individual. But today this has been reframed to reflect the failure of institutions and the structural abuse of power and privilege. One of the uh, features of the recent recognition of child sex abuse is a change in the language of recognition of the harms of abuse. And lots of scholars trace this back to developments in feminism and second wave feminism. So in that period, you know, in the mid-20th century, sexual assaults and, and sexual deviancy was recognised and treated, um, but it was treated as an individual problem. But it wasn't a bigger social concern, mm -hmm. it was just this one defective 
person, whereas the feminist reframed this as part of a bigger critique of gender and of society, saying these kind of abuses are structural abuses of, you know, that are brought about by male privilege. So there's a sort of a new understanding of the power structures behind sexual abuse. As society's understanding of child sexual abuse has increased and altered, the legal definitions of sexual abuse and sexual consent has also changed. This poses challenges for both the wider community and the victims of abuse, as past legal definitions and social attitudes often conflict with what is acceptable and legal today. One of the things that the general public and, uh, and survivors of abuse themselves really have to struggle with is this recognition that what we understand as child sex abuse today hasn't always been understood in those terms, and that's for a variety of reasons. The law has changed. So who is a child today wasn't necessarily the same as who was considered a child in the historic past. Mm. You know, ages of consent for sexual activity have risen from the late 19th century, from ages of you know, 12 and 13, up to sort of 16 and then higher for different sexual acts mm. actually so for different still today in Australia different um, sexual acts in different states have different, uh, different ages states. of consent yes absolutely can you give me an example uh, well the most obvious one is uh, homosexual sex and particularly uh, anal sex has a different age of consent uh, in different states in the past too sexual abuse against boys was neglected partly because legislation viewed young girls as the primary victims of sexual assault. And since homosexual sex was illegal for so many years, this prevented many male victims from reporting cases of abuse out of fear that they themselves would be prosecuted. But it's not just the definition of childhood. There's also really a huge gender difference in the way that sexual offences were understood and in the kinds of offences that occurred in different institutions. So most of the historic legislation that recognised child sex offences focused on girls as victims, whereas young boys who might have been subject to sexual assault by an older man were less recognised in the law as victims. And there was an example, a report in Victoria recently, that showed a young adolescent boy in the 1950s came forward to the police and made an allegation that an older man had sexually assaulted him. And the boy, as well as the man who insulted him, were charged with homosexual offences. Mm. So the fact that all homosexual sex was mm. criminalised meant that young boys who were sexually assaulted uh, were also participants in a criminal act, mm. like the harm of the sexual assault was subsumed within the criminalisation of all homosexual activity. Mm. So boys who uh, were victims of sexual assault had to deal with this dual problem of being kind of categorised as a homosexual offender, it's quite difficult then to kind of occupy the space of recognising that you were a victim of a sexual assault. As homosexual sex was slowly decriminalised across Australia, the legal protection it provided allowed male survivors to come forward and identify themselves as victims. The decriminalisation of homosexual sex, which happens progressively in Australia from the early uh, 1970s right up into the late 1990s, depending on what state you're in, uh, obviously completely changes the way in which sexual offences were, were understood. And with the decriminalisation of homosexual sex, then suddenly crimes against boys emerge. So at the same time as the homosexual 
is being more accepted in society, the paedophile or the sexual offender against young boys kind of emerges as a different kind of character in the law. The shift in societal attitudes, the changes to laws and growing public awareness has allowed victims to identify together as survivors. And whereas in the past the issue of child sexual abuse was often raised by social reformers, today the survivors of abuse themselves have worked and campaigned together to achieve recognition and support for the trauma they experienced as children. So what's different about um, the recognition of child sex abuse in the last couple of decades is that it's very much driven by the survivors of abuse. Uh, so earlier um, moments of concern with child sex abuse were very much driven by social reformers, people like a top-down mm -hmm. uh, concern, but what we've seen uh, and in the groups that were campaigning for the Royal Commission, most prominent were survivor groups themselves. So survivors who recognised and identified and banded together and have been campaigning for their harms to be recognised by society. One of the most disturbing revelations to come out of the Royal Commission was the consistently inadequate handling of sex abuse cases by religious institutions privileging the belief that sex abuse is a sin against God rather than primarily a crime against the victim has been one factor that enabled religious institutions to neglect criminal justice responses to offenders and in effect cover up their offences. Sexual abuse happens in many parts of society, in all parts of society. It's actually quite common and tragic, but tragically ordinary, I think. Mm. The statistics of the people who are abused are huge, a huge proportion of, uh, of people will suffer abuse. But abuse in religious institutions is, has a different quality to it because of the religious framework through which it's understood. And a key feature of that is understanding of abuse as uh, a sin. So all of the churches uh, in their dealings with abuse treat abuse first and foremost as a sin, which is a crime against God not against uh, the victim of abuse, which completely transforms what is seen within these different institutions uh, as the appropriate way to treat offenders and to treat victims of sexual assault. Although there is now a better understanding of the issues surrounding child sexual abuse, the Royal Commission hearings have revealed that many religious leaders have struggled to recognise sex abuse as a criminal offence, even today. So the church's understanding of sexual offenders and sexual offences has changed over time. Understandings of abuse as sin, first and foremost, sin is pretty constant, but that's not isolated from changes in the law and changes in medicine. And what was really striking uh, in the testimony of various religious leaders at the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry was how clearly they articulated their struggle to recognise the criminal nature of these acts. So they said, well, of course we saw it as a sin. And then we started to see it as a pathology, like these men were sick, that's why they were committing these crimes. So then we would respond by putting them into treatment facilities, sending them to psychologists. And then they almost always said, but of course we should have seen it as a crime. Mm. But they didn't see it as a crime. They didn't respond to it as a crime. Uh, and most 
religious institutions are still very slow to recognise child sex abuse as criminal acts. Religious institutions also believed that child abuse was a problem of sexual orientation and constrained to homosexual clergy. Their failure to recognise that many, if not most, offenders commit sexual abuse not out of an inbuilt pathology, but rather opportunistically, led to a poor handling of child abuse cases. Pope John Paul II was widely criticised for his response to the child sex abuse crisis, which you know emerged during his papacy and was continual through it. His response was, oh, it's mostly boys who are being abused, it must be homosexuals, we'll stop letting homosexuals become priests, which completely misunderstands the nature of abuse in religious institutions. The gender proportion of victims of abuse in the wider population isn't equal. So twice as many girls as boys uh, have been subject to sexual abuse in studies of the general population. When we look at abuse in religious institutions, the gendered proportion is reversed. So twice as many boys uh, have been abused in religious institutions, particularly, uh, this is, I'm thinking of a study of the Catholic Church that was done in the United States. Uh, and on a naive reading, you might think, oh, it must be because the priests are attracted to boys. They've got a homosexual orientation. But there's a couple of things that we need to kind of step back and realise before we accept the, that sort of first reading. Most of this abuse is happening in schools and orphanages, in these institutions of care, uh, which is part of the tragedy, is that these children are put into institutions to be cared for, and so many of them were abused. Why were, the, why were more boys abused than girls? Uh, there are a number of reasons. Partly because boys weren't seen to be at risk. Boys weren't seen to be vulnerable to sexual abuse. So they weren't supervised in the same way. So there were just basically twice as many opportunities to abuse boys as girls. So part of the statistics might be explained by opportunity. There was more surveillance of girls. Girls were more protected from abuse than boys were in these kinds of institutions. While the testimonies and findings of the Royal Commission have been tragic and alarming, Tim Jones is hopeful that the publicity surrounding the Commission will increase awareness of the issue and make it more difficult for abuse to occur in the future. By making a big public inquiry like this, which has been in the headlines, it's been in the papers for you know two years now, makes people familiar with the problem, makes people be able to recognise abusive behaviour and gives people the confidence to perhaps to report it, to not be ashamed of abuse. And I think that breaking the silence is a huge way that society might be transformed. If there's less shame around it, if it's recognised, then people can go forward, can report it, can stop it happening, and can intervene in situations before, before anything happened.